Hello there to all my 101 History Podcast listeners. It's good to be back on the air. I know I say that a lot with my sessions, but you know what? Every time I'm back on the air, I feel like I'm bringing new information to my listeners out there, and that's the way it should be, because just when we feel like we've learned everything there is about a particular subject, um, we're finding out that we're learning something new, even if it means going back and rereading what you think is um, relevant to share. Well, here we are on another uh, podcast session of Steve Vogel's book, Through the Perilous Fight, From the Burning of Washington to the Star-Spangled Banner, The Six Weeks That Saved the Nation. You know, this War of 1812, it's a long-fought-out war. But then then again, the American Revolution was the same way, too, about seven years. Uh, This war really is about four years long. But like the American Revolution, I think it's safe to say that um, conflict had been brewing for some time. However, I will admit that when... 13 colonies back in 1776 declared their separation from England, it is far more relevant to say that um, the 13 colonies were 100 times more united in separating from England, whereas the United States here going on into between 1813 and 1814 the people of the country are very bitterly divided on this war, especially those in Congress. We're almost, you know, 40 years old as an actual country, and this is the first time that the United States, being the United States of America, is actually at war with another country. Even though, yes, in 1776 we did declare our separation and independence from England, we still were treated as if we, by England, as if we were not the United States. In other words, we still had that title known as Colonial America. But even though, yes, this is our second war for independence from England, I would say that there is a greater um, unity, obviously, in the American Revolution than there was... Um, in this war, especially in the beginning. Well, we're going to pick back up with uh, Rear Admiral George uh, Coburn. Now, however, tonight's podcast isn't going to talk, or, or should I say the focus isn't going to be on him 100% tonight, but he is going to be discussed some more, and we also have another uh, figure of um, importance on the British side who is almost like a sidekick partner to Rear Admiral George Coburn. Now, there is a lot going on um, between the halfway part of 1813, that is the months of June into um, September of that year, and then at the start of 1814. There, There is a lot of coming and going. Well, where let me ask you this uh where do the british go in september of 1813 um to resupply to i guess what you might say recuperate to get prepared um for the comings of what will take place in the following year the british fleet 
will leave the Chesapeake Bay in September of 1813 to go to Bermuda, where they will rest for the winter. But, it, but before they will rest for the winter, what um, has there been a lot of destruction along the uh, coasts of, um, especially of Maryland and Virginia? Yes, the the British have waged a lot of destruction. I know I mentioned yesterday that um, that Rear Admiral Coburn and his forces had left a lot of destruction, especially in Haver de Gras, Maryland, Hampton, Virginia, um, into Georgetown. And of course, I had thought there for a while that we were referring to like Georgetown, you know, D.C. Yes, Georgetown is Georgetown, D.C. is a tobacco port. But actually, there is a town in Maryland known as Georgetown, Maryland, and there is a town in Delaware known as Georgetown, Delaware. But the Maryland Eastern Shore, and most notably of Georgetown, Fredericktown, and Haver de Gras, have um, really been um, destroyed almost pretty much by uh, the British. And to make matters worse, they go into Norfolk and Hampton, Virginia, and do the same thing. Now, the irony with uh, Norfolk was that the uh, militia had been able to uh, secure a small victory skirmish, but it turned out a couple days later that the British really got their revenge on our militia and pretty much destroyed our town. You know, it was bad enough that the British could destroy villages and as I mentioned yesterday, what they did uh, to the village of Kinsale, Virginia, along the Yacomico River, uh, being in the northern neck, they, le- they destroyed 30 homes, they captured five schooners that had a plethora of uh, hogsheads of uh, tobacco and other um, vital uh, resources. But it turns out that, um, that the British, um, not just the British forces, but those who... Um, fought along them, even French, uh, that is, um, French soldiers who came from the Iberian uh, Peninsula, who, uh, who felt it was necessary to take up arms with the British in retaliation against uh, the Americans, um, would not only have destroyed people's homes, but they would have attacked innocent civilians. There are accounts, sadly, of um, women and this is a very sad thing to say, but this did happen where women were raped and the British did nothing about it. In other words, they tolerated it. They felt that um, those who had taken up arms against the British needed to be punished severely. And uh, I, I will say this, though, too. What, basically, what is Rear Admiral George Coburn's uh, strategic goal his strategic goal is to, to conquer and destroy Washington, D.C., but his, his primary objective, even with the um, lootings and, attack, and attacks on the eastern shore of Maryland and Virginia and just towns up and down the coast, it was meant to provoke fear. It was meant to uh, say to the people along the coast that, hey, we don't care who you are. In terms of your status, we're going to make life miserable for you. We're going to make you all 
be put on pins and needles to where you just don't even know what's coming. This is almost like a blitzkrieg. Now, if any of you know what blitzkrieg means, it, it means lightning strike. For, lightning force um, strike. In other words, it was a term, not to get a far ahead of history, but it was a term used in World War II that Adolf Hitler and the Nazis would go about engaging when uh, attacking other countries without any notice. That's how they were pretty much able to conquer so many other countries, most notably next door like Poland and then Norway, Denmark, and Belgium as a part of that evil uh, Nazi empire. That's kind of what was happening in 1814, or should I say into late 1813, into the eventual start of 1814, that uh, Admiral Coburn and his forces were going up and down the Chesapeake Bay, making life miserable. And basically, all this destruction has a purpose to him. He wants to destroy... In other words, his um, style of... Um, his military strategy style is um, something that resembles total warfare. To, in other words, for Rear Admiral Coburn... His objective is to destroy the United States' will to fight. He wants to cause extensive amounts of damage to where the U.S. could no longer fight this war. In other words, he wants us to become nothing more than rabble. Um, basically, people who will end up having to uh, surrender uh, their country to a high superior force who would take over and rule over them just like King George III and Parliament had done when the United States was colonial America and they had 13 colonies to govern over. Well, it's bad enough that you have all of these uh, attacks going on up and down um, the Virginia and, and Maryland Eastern Shore and, and in uh, just other towns in general, now, here's a, a, a good bonus question for you listeners. Did the British Navy attempt to strike Washington in 1813? The answer is yes. But believe it or not, the mission failed because the ship entering what was known as Kettle Bottom Shoals, being the HMS San Domingo, was too large to where the ship itself could simply not pass around the shallow waters. Well, I know this is probably a relief for President Madison and his cabinet, but what do his what does his cabinet do? Well, after all after this skirmish has taken place and the British have left, they throw a party for the militia's um standing um performance and have decided that the worst is behind them. In other words, I think we've seen the worst. I think we've seen the worst, and the worst is behind us. We're not going to have anything to worry about. So basically, Madison's administration goes into complacency. It's a huge mistake. For one, think about how much destruction the British have laid upon the towns of Havre de Gras, Maryland, Norfolk, and Hampton, Virginia, to really Maryland's eastern shore. And the same for Virginia. But remember, James Madison, I hate to say this about him. Yes, he, is, he was 
If it weren't for him, yes, there probably would have been no Bill of Rights to our American Constitution. A great political thinker. The problem, though, is that Madison just does not have what it takes to be a commander-in-chief in terms of, um, in terms of um, administering a war on which he really did not have a lot of um, proper criteria to go by, but yet he does not believe in the presence of not just a standing army, but an army that is well uh, built to withstand not just um, what is going to take place down the road, but he just does not have a concept of what it takes to maintain an army, even in times of peace. The bottom line is, is that Madison, sadly, is playing with fire, and it's just a matter of time before um, it gets so bad to where it's going to backfire on him and he can't reverse course. Now, even though, yes, uh, Rear Admiral Coburn um, wanted uh, engaged in what was called to, uh, something similar to total warfare, and it's very evident that he does not like Americans whatsoever. What did he want to do in general? Well, of course, he wanted to punish us, but he saw Americans as naughty children who needed to be taught a lesson. He saw those who defended their homes as traitors and was appalled at the fact that Americans who were willing to fire upon his troops actually chose to harbor the enemy, being those who, who were totally against Britain. This sounds crazy, but it is true. Did Rear Admiral Coburn respect bravery? Yes, he did. But he preferred personal pleas. For, for an example, he preferred personal pleas from women who were good-looking to, to women who just showed spunk. Apparently, women in his eyes that were good-looking, attractive, who were calm in times of crisis, they appealed to his standards because they, they obviously knew how to conduct themselves, and they probably had a great deal to offer and were, you know, perhaps sympathetic, even to those who were labeled as the enemy. I think it's safe to say at this point in time that uh, Rear Admiral Coburn probably doesn't have a whole lot of respect for any American male um, soldier or officer because nobody's really had the guts in terms of a male officer to challenge his authority. But in the next podcast session, we're going to find out who actually does have the balls to challenge him. And you're going to like reading about knowing about this guy because I did. He laid everything on the line. But that's for another for the next episode. Well, you know, um, who else um, is, he's worth pointing out because um, Francis Scott Key, where is he all this time in 1813? Well, you know, he's still living in Maryland. And, well, actually, I talk about he's in Georgetown. But is he very concerned about the country's well-being? Absolutely, because he knows, for one, we went to war for all the wrong reasons, but he's very concerned that the Madison administration has not done enough 
to protect the um, coastal waters, let alone even Washington uh, being the nation's capital from any would-be potential uh, terrorist attack. But Francis Scott Key himself serves in the militia in 1813, and his title was Matros, or Matros, which is a gunner's mate who is responsible for loading and sponging a cannon barrel. Well, hey, I got to give Francis Scott Key credit for at least having some bravery to go out and do what's necessary in this time of uncertainty. However, the militiamen from Georgetown have little or no military experience. Even Francis Scott Key knows himself that he has hardly any military experience that would um, sell him to someone above that would um, view him as a long-term asset. But hey, Francis Scott Key is doing what is required, and that is he is taking time out of his schedule not only to just serve his community, but to, but to perhaps um, look after his country. After all, the country's going to need more than militiamen. But as I said a moment ago, James Madison here, within a matter of time, is going to be in for a rude awakening. Now, another person to point out is Martha Peter. Why is she important? It just so happens to be that she is the step-granddaughter of George Washington. Of course, George Washington and George and Martha Washington are already deceased by now. But Martha Peter made, ver- made many careful observations of the militiamen she saw coming in and out of, of uh, Georgetown. She was not impressed with the militia who had put down the invasion in D.C. back in 1813. She wasn't impressed with it because these men were not real soldiers. It's not that they didn't care. It's the fact that many of these men were put into a situation that they had little formal training. They, they were just going out there to you know, put down what they thought was a little insurrection, a bluff, uh, you know, the opposition saying, hey, you know, I, tr- I, I dare you to come out here and try to defend us or to, um, to defend your country because uh, we're going to try to see if we can pull off some kind of surprise attack. Perhaps the uh, HMS Domingo's getting stuck in the uh, shallow waters should have been a red flag right there that, hey, even if this ship can't get through the... Um, Kettle Bottom Shoals, another ship will. So how are you going to be ready to prepare yourself for when the inevitable really does happen? So Martha Peter knew, obviously, what was and wasn't a real soldier. And the fact that she was seeing um, soldiers who were not real, yeah, that was uh, a red flag in her eyes. Well, now we're going to get to the second British figure. We've spent a lot of time talking about Rear Admiral Coburn, and I'm pretty sure that he might, he'll be mentioned again at another podcast session here soon. But which other uh, British vice admiral comes into play 
at the start of 1814 and teams up with uh, Rear Admiral Coburn. His name is Alexander Cochran. He is an expert on warfare and an avid hater of America. Well, I think it's safe to say that um, Rear Admiral Coburn and, um, and Vice Admiral uh, Alexander Cochran are two peas in a pod, but for all the right reasons. They have enough anger towards America, and the men below them can share in their uh, passions and desires, and when that happens, you've got all the right fuel and fire to do what's necessary to launch a surprise attack from any direction. Let's find out, though, a little bit about Alexander Cochran. He's born in Scotland in the year 1758. Now, what war is going on at this time? It's in colonial America, the French and Indian War, or as the Europeans like to call it, the Seven Years' War. Mr. Cochran is the younger son of Scottish peer Thomas Cochran, who, is, who was the 8th Earl of Dundonald. Now, remember people, when you live in Europe, many countries in Europe, you're going to come, you can have a family member who has a title, it's very possible that once you um, reach a certain age, you can inherit a title. What did our forefathers not want um, in terms of political leaders having? They did not want them to have titles of nobility. All of that was abolished in the Constitution. Um, but, of course, by the time George Washington became president, some people wanted to call him His Majesty or His Excellency. Yes, fitting names for, for, for Washington himself, considering that he was father of our country. But George Washington admitted that, hey, I, it wasn't that long ago that I fought a war to keep kings out of our country, to keep people of hereditary nobility out of our country. So, therefore... If I don't want that kind of, um, what do you call it, governmental title in my country, then it's not allowed whatsoever. So, as for Mr. Cochran, he joined the Royal Navy as a young boy, and he served with the British naval forces in North America. He even served in the American Revolution. He also served elsewhere around the world where British presence was necessary. I had even read online where he served in Egypt at the start of the 19th century. So, remember people, even in this War of 1812 and before it, the British Navy is the most powerful navy in the world. And their presence is, is anywhere in the world. So it's very hard to underestimate their presence because, they, because many of their ships are ubiquitous. And what ubiquitous means is that they're seen everywhere. Well, he took command of operations on April 1st, 1814 and strongly encouraged Rear Admiral Coburn to do whatever was necessary to the United States in terms of payback. Here is something very important that I want us to keep in mind. As I've said before, that it's just a matter of time before Washington, D.C. will be attacked. I know I might be giving away information now, but think about it. Britain is on a mission, and their mission has gone unchecked, in large part because the Madison administration has allowed it to happen. However, 
Alexandra Cochran knows why it's so essential for his countrymen to get revenge on the United States. Well, this all stems from two incidents that happened in 1813 in which the United States, the United States Army, engaged in uh, payback retaliation to the British on Canadian soil. The first incident involved, um, it was in, well, the first, let's start here. In December 1813, an incident on the Niagara frontier took place where American troops had burned the town of Newark. And where the town of Newark exists today, that's what we now refer to as Niagara-on-the-Lake, on the Canadian side. The town of Newark in 1813 was burnt. It was virtually destroyed to where nearly 400 innocent civilians were left homeless in the dead of winter. Now, can you imagine being any one of those 400 civilians, men, women, and children, your homes have been destroyed. You know, yes, one of the objectives for that the Americans wanted to do was they wanted to liberate the Canadians from unnecessary uh, British rule. Well, for starters, um, the Canadians had nothing to do with the British acts of impressment on the high seas that, that was um, their, the British impressing our sailors. The Canadians didn't have anything to do with that. But remember, those who fled to Canada were loyalists, loyal to the crown. So regardless of what we're thinking, we're just going to do whatever it takes to um, not only try to win those people over, but if it means destroying homes, then it might make the British realize, hey, maybe we need to stop impressing American sailors. Uh, it doesn't work that way. But if, if I think that's bad... Eight months earlier, on April 27th, American troops, without orders from above in terms of um, the high-ranking commanders, just ordinary American troops decide that it's okay to loot, or should I say destroy, the capital of Upper Canada, being York. And these, the American troops were blamed by the British for burning the provincial parliament or what was referred to as the interim government buildings. Basically, we destroyed their capital. Okay? Now, as we all know, in today's time, the capital of uh, Canada is in Ottawa. Now, Ottawa is around at this time, but it's not the capital. The interim capital is York, Ontario. And, of course, Ottawa is in Ontario. It just so happened to be in 1813, York was the capital. So, this is, um, this is not good. Um, yes, we are trying to make a case that we can go head-to-toe with the mightiest empire in the world still, but we're doing it for the wrong reasons. I mean, it's bad enough we've declared war for the wrong reasons, but now we're, built, we're burning their interim, or what's called their provincial government building, where Parliament meets. Now it's bad enough we've left 400 of their civilians homeless in the dead of winter. So when you've engaged in actions like this, 
it's just a matter of time before the enemy is going to come up with a grand plan to get revenge on you. Now, in order for an attack to take place on Washington, D.C., where does Rear Admiral George Coburn go to set up shop? My wife and I have been to this um, island before. It's been around for many years. It was even, it's been around even before our forefathers were born. Native Americans once um, lived on the island. The answer is Tangier Island. It's an, it was an isolated fishing village with a deep water harbor in the middle of the Chesapeake Bay. The island itself was in, in a perfect central location. How so? Well, the British could monitor the enemy and could launch operations from either the Virginia or the Maryland side of the Chesapeake. So, in other words, to the west of Tangier is Virginia, and Tangier Island is in Virginia, but to the east is Maryland. Now, and to make matters even more beneficial for the British, Tangier itself is within easy sail of both the Potomac and the Patuxent Rivers. Either one of those rivers can flow right into Washington, D.C. The Patuxent can go all the way up into Baltimore. And what an, what an ideal spot to set up shop and also to sail along into either one of those rivers because it's by sailing both up the Potomac and the Patuxent Rivers, it is the most ideal spot for an attack on Washington. Now, my wife and I went to Tangier Island for a day trip 13 years ago. We um, spent a, a weekend getaway in the northern neck in a place called Reedville. Now, of course, Reedville's not around in 1814, but if any of you are curious to know how Reedville got its name, I'll tell you right here. It's named after a fella um, known as, um, whose name was Elijah Reed. He founded uh, the Menhaden fishing industry in the post-Civil War era. Of course, I know I'm getting a little ahead of the game, but hey, the names are important to mention. They're also important to um, give a little history about. And for those of you who are native to Virginia, not just to the northern neck, but, else, but anywhere in Virginia, it should be worth pointing out that um, during World War I, Reedville, Virginia, was the, was the richest town in the United States in terms of uh, per capita income. If you go along the Main Street drag of Reedville, you see several Victorian homes, and they're still there today. We saw them 13 years ago. The street name, the street got a nickname called Millionaire's Row. So that period of, of, of World War I in Reedville, Virginia, just remember, that was the richest town in America in terms of uh, per capita income. But as for our day trip to Tangier Island, um, for those of you who want to know how to get there, you got to go by boat, or you can go by airplane, or, or even take a helicopter. The island, um, its population is not what it once used to be. Even in the 19th century, it's probably safe to say you might have had close to anywhere from 2,500 to 5,000 people living. There's fewer than 700 people living on the island today. Not many young people are interested in wanting to become a waterman. Well, who is a waterman? Well, it's part of um, 
the fishing industry. It's um, part of what's called uh, crabbing, for example. And of course, Tangier Island is also facing a lot of environmental issues, most notably erosion. Uh, part of the island um, could, itself could sink into the uh, Chesapeake Bay. And, you know, who knows uh, 25 or 50 years from now if the island is still there. Uh, what I do know is that um, there are some uh, families who live on the island who've been living there for years. Uh, their last names are Crockett, uh, Thomas, Dyes, and Pruitt. Matter of fact, when we were in Reedville, we met a gentleman who was going over to Tangier the same day that we were. He was going to visit one of his uncles who had lived on the island all of his life. As a matter of fact, I believe his last name was Dyes. And what do you know? One of the original families who um, settled on the island years ago. Uh, the primary uh, religion on the island is Methodist. But if you don't have a car on the island, how do you get around from point A to point B on the streets? You take a golf cart. We rode on a golf cart. Uh, we had someone drive us around. It was worth it. If somebody were to ask me, would you go back? Uh, probably not. Uh, not that I didn't find it interesting, it's just that, as my wife once said, once you've been there, you've seen it all. If somebody were to ask me, uh, do they have any shop, big shops or stores there? Well, I'll put it to you all this way. There are no Walmarts, there are no Targets, there are no Sam's Clubs or Costco's on Tangier Island. If you want to go to a Walmart or to a Target you will have to take a boat into the mainland of either Virginia or into Maryland. And if you were in dire need of a, an emergency, in terms of medical emergency, we were told that a helicopter from Crisfield, Maryland Hospital, which is along the Maryland Eastern Shore, would come into Tangier Island and take you to, uh, to the Maryland uh, Eastern Shore. So... I would say living on an island like Tangier is much, much different than, say, living on the um, mainland of uh, Virginia. But there have been people, but there are people who have lived on Tangier all their life and, and don't know any better. But, hey, if that's all they know and they've survived like that, more power to them. Well, the British um, end up building a fort at the southern end of the island known as Fort Albion. Well, they, it wasn't just an ordinary fort that was built. This was a pretty impressive structure. They, had, they ended up building a church, and it also included 20 houses, a hospital large enough to treat almost uh, 100 patients. There were barracks built for 1,000 men, that is, prisoners of war, storehouses, vegetable gardens, to even a burial ground. Well, I think it's safe to say that this is not going to be just a three-month um, setup um, establishment. This, is, this could be long-term. Who knows how long this war could last, but the bottom line is the British um, are here to stay, and they mean business. Well, as for Fort Albion... The fort itself was seen as an, an emergence of, new, of a new fighting force. 
And what is this new fighting force? It was comprised of escaped slaves. And believe me, people, there were a, a lot of escaped uh, slaves who, who managed to leave their masters' homes, not only on the Maryland side of the eastern shore, but along Virginia's northern neck and eastern shore. Now, this group of um, escaped slaves became known as the Corps of Colonial Marines. And it's interesting to note that while in Bermuda, Alexander Cochran issued a thousand copies of proclamation inviting slaves all throughout the Chesapeake region to join the British. And his proclamation paid off big time. The Union Jack flag establishes the British dominance over the bay, and it's flying high and mighty. It serves as a beacon for those escaped slaves. And it turns out that in one night alone, over 140 of them escaped. Can you imagine that? 140 of them escaping. Well, it does serve the British for all the right reasons. As a matter of fact, Rear Admiral George Coburn himself saw the Colonial Marines to be full of courage and less likely to, de to desert versus the regular Royal Marines. And the Colonial Marines even saw... They saw some early military action um, back in 1813. They went as far as to um, engaging a militia force on the Virginia eastern shore in a, lo in a place known as Pungateague, which is not far from Shinkateague and what is known as Assateague Island. And it turns out that these um, men who made up the um, Corps of Colonial Marines Marines had more knowledge about their prior places of servitude versus their former masters. Well, what does that necessarily mean? In other words, the escaped um, slaves had a better understanding of of their villages, uh, of the layout of their villages. In other words, they knew where um, their masters stored items of um, essential security, say like a rifle, for example. They knew where um, their masters took uh, certain valuable possessions in and out of their home. They knew uh, the back roads. They knew how to get around from point A to point B. So if the slaves know more than their masters do, think of what that could do to help the British not just the British uh, Army or the Navy, but think about the high-ranking generals and how they can go about launching an attack on these attacks on these communities, which have already happened at Havre de Gras, Maryland, Hampton and Norfolk, Virginia, um, to Fredericktown, Maryland. So the bottom line is, we have almost we have ourselves to thank for becoming a sitting duck, but. We also have to thank President Madison for this because, once again, he's going to be in for a rude awakening. So um, it's interesting to note that, um, that yes, the um, Corps of Colonial Marines defeated um, the militia force in Pungateague, Virginia. And I didn't know this, but Pungateague means a place of fine sand, 
Um, very interesting to point out. Now, I know that uh, there are two counties that make up Virginia's eastern shore. They, they are Accomack and uh, Northampton County. And in today's time, you can go um, from where I live in Virginia to the Virginia eastern shore. You can go straight down 64 east and then uh, go through the famous Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel, which is considered to be one of the uh, top eight or top ten engineering marvels in the world of all time. And to give, to give any of you a little history, um, the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel was first built in 1964. And over the years, it, w it expanded. So, but prior to this um, tunnel being built, the only way you could get to the Virginia Eastern Shore from the mainland was by taking a ferry. And so I kid you not, you, when you go along the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel, you, when you drive up, you actually see water below you, just like on any bridge. But then you make your way down, and you go well down below for probably about, well, I know that the tunnel itself is about 13 miles, the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel is. But you go, but you're underground for a while, but it's a very, um, it's a unique experience, to say the least. My wife and I did it 11 years ago. We uh, took an anniversary trip up to the eastern shore in Chincoteague Island. But, um, but having read this book uh, made me gain a better appreciation of just... Um, you know, one would say, is it for the right reason? And then, of course, one would say, would it be for the wrong reasons? I'd say perhaps both, but it did give me a better understanding of just, um, of why the British chose Tangier Island as their uh, central location and why the Chesapeake Bay itself was such a hot target for the British. Uh, we tend to think sometimes, oh, we're surrounded by bodies of water and nothing's going to happen. Well, it turns out that sometimes bodies of water can be an advantage to the enemy. And in 1813, 1814, it was a huge advantage. You know, it's bad enough if, if the coast is not being properly protected, but, but given that the enemy has all the advantages, there are left and right then, then launching raids by water is going to be to your advantage. Well, um, we have uh, covered a lot of ground tonight, and we, I look forward to another upcoming podcast session here soon. And in the next podcast session, I'm going to be talking about the uh, gentleman, or should I say officer, on the American side who is the first to take a stand against Rear Admiral George Coburn. There are others who will take a stand, but the bigger question is, is can everybody do it on the same level like this one fellow who I'll be focusing a great deal on tomorrow, uh, hopefully tomorrow, or if not tomorrow, come Wednesday about. Again, thank you for listening, and, um, and if those of you out there who want to do um, any kind of podcasting, I strongly recommend coming through Anchor Podcast. Why? Because number one, it's free to join. Two, the opportunities are limitless. And three, if you have a subject or a topic 
anything that is of your passion to share, come to Anchor, because I tell you this right now, for me, the opportunities have been limitless, and the fact that I have gotten almost, uh, I've gotten over 550 uh, plays, and I'm not saying because it's 550 plays I've gotten over, but the fact that I've got not just a great following in the United States, but from uh, Canada, the United Kingdom, Ireland, Italy, and now Singapore, it just goes to show you that, hey, people all around the world are interested they're not only interested in what I have to share, but they're probably interested in learning more about the subjects themselves, and they are passing that information on to other people. So please, if any of you out there know of others who are interested in listening to this subject or to any of my other previous podcasts on topics like the Boston Massacre or to uh, signing their lives away, the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the Declaration of Independence, tell them to come to Anchor because they won't be disappointed one bit. Thank you and uh, stay safe.